This is a Federal News Network podcast. With the Supreme Court recently striking down Roe v. Wade, military service members may need to think differently about abortion. The Defense Department is promising to protect abortion, but that still leaves some pregnant service members in the lurch. Federal News Network Scott Mossioni has more. And Scott, let's begin with what DOD action and policy is in the aftermath of overturning Roe v. Wade. Pretty directly after the decision, the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, along with the Undersecretary of Personnel and Readiness, came out with basically a memo and said that they're working with the Justice Department to kind of figure out what their options were uh, under this new situation. The Defense Department will at this point and and continue to provide care to service members who are in need of abortions, and that's only in the case of incest, rape, or when the mother is getting some sort of harm to her body because of of the child, someone's life is in danger. Is that a continuance of current DOD policy? That is a continuance of current DOD policy, and that is what is under federal law, under the Hyde Amendment and under Title 10, which is called covered abortions. Now, they're also going to be continuing care like IUDs and birth control, which at this point has not been threatened. But there have been some state laws that are now bringing in some or at least state bills that are bringing in some possibilities of changing those sorts of of situations. So even if you're in a state that fully bans abortion like uh, Alabama you will still be able to get the care that you need if you have a covered, if you need a covered abortion and go to a military treatment facility, because at that point you're under the federal law and not some some sort of state law. Yes, that answers the next question I had. The military is bound by federal law at whatever location a person is on if it's a federal military installation. That's exactly right. So what might change then? It sounds like not a whole lot will change for service members. Right. Well, it's really the access to care that's going to be changing. And that really is for service members who need to get abortions that are not necessarily under these federal guidelines, which, as I said before, are incest, rape or harm to someone's body. It's not exactly easy to get that access to care, especially if you're in somewhere like Utah or Alabama. You may need to travel literally hundreds of miles and have to Uh, drive these hours just to get the care that you need. It's not necessarily easy in the military to take off and get the time that you need to do that. So it's really the access to care that will be changing. In the past, people who were pregnant were able to go within the state to get the care that they need, even if there were only a small amount of abortion clinics. In this case, they're going to have to leave the state and go to one that is more friendly to abortions. We're now seeing that there could be up to 17 states that will either restrict abortion or fully ban it at this point. Right. So just to summarize, if you can't be qualified for Title 10 or Hyde Amendment abortion by the military on military grounds and you have to leave the military facility, then you are subject to whatever state law is prevalent. That's exactly right. So what are some of the scenarios that service members seeking this type of care could face then? There's really two major issues at this point. And I talked to Tammy Smith, who is the former chief of personnel for the Army. One of the things she said is that getting leave for service members can be quite difficult uh, when they need it right, right away. There's a lot of paperwork and red tape you have to go through to take a few days off work and actually get off of work quickly. And especially in these sort of pregnancy situations, it's not exactly something that you can wait on, uh, especially if you're 
you're going to a state where they have a six-week ban or a 15-week ban, you really need to start moving if you need, and especially because you don't necessarily know when you're pregnant until you know, four, five, six weeks in, or maybe even later. So at this point, service members need to ask their commander and send in these forms to get the time off that they need. Uh, That can come up with a lot of privacy issues for service members who are going to be requesting sort of an emergency leave saying, hey, can you please let me off this next week instead of a month down the road? And then you're kind of getting into these sort of maybe HIPAA violations or medical violations where you're talking to your commander and saying, well, you know, I need an abortion. And that's not exactly the easiest conversation to have with your boss. Right. The second thing is that service members are going to have to deal with costs. There's the traveling to these different areas. Uh, you know, sometimes if you're leaving from Salt Lake City, for example, it can be a six hour drive, which is hundreds of miles. Gas prices are very expensive right now. And if you happen to be an E1 or an E2, your salary is not really going to be helpful for trying to get off and, and using your money to get that care that you need. Secondly, the abortions can be very expensive and cost up to thousands of dollars considering the type of care that someone might need. So this can be quite prohibitive to some service members, especially when they need to take off work. Well, really, the situation you're describing is how it's always been then for military members in those states that have traditionally restricted abortion to this degree. So maybe the change here is that those restrictions are spreading to more geographical areas as state legislators react to the Supreme Court. That's right. And there has never really been a complete ban in any of the states. I mean, even Texas and Alabama have had some clinics, even though they've had to drive a certain amount of distance to get those. You know, there may only be one or two in a state. But in this situation, like I said, with Utah, they're going to have to be driving quite a way up to maybe Oregon or California to get the care that they need instead of going to that one clinic within the state. So it's going to be farther drives for service members than there were before. And do we have any indication, is there any records on the number of abortions performed to military women in a given year? Do we know this number at all? It's kind of hard to to tell at this point, considering that service members have these two different options that we're talking about. So, uh, you know, you can talk about the Hyde Amendment abortions, and that would be one number. But the number that are going to get the the non-Hyde Amendment abortions, we don't really know. And that's purely because, you know, you're not going in and telling the, the abortion clinic what your your occupation is. You're just going in and getting the care that you need. So, uh, you know, there's two different situations we're talking about and bringing those together is is a bit difficult. So it's impossible really then for military authorities to have any kind of handle on the historical data if what a person left on leave for, for example, is protected by HIPAA. Right, exactly. And, and, you know, that's you're getting into a whole nother can of worms when you're starting to ask people why they're leaving and where they're going. And I guess this is probably obvious, but this issue is particularly tough for female service members. That's right. I mean, at this point, if you are in the military, you obviously need your body to be in tip top shape. The military has taken many policies and new policies to try and help people in the military who are pregnant. And that means that they've you know, given them more time off. They've given them uh, you know, more time to recover and to ensure that they have the right amount of body fat that they need to continue producing breast milk. But if you're a service member and you want to continue with your career, sometimes taking that time off isn't exactly the easiest thing. 
And also bouncing back from a pregnancy is not the easiest thing. And a person may choose that you know, this is not the time in my career, the time in my life that I need to have a child. The second thing is that the Defense Department does still have quite a masculine culture. There is a stigma around some uh, women getting pregnant. If you remember my uh, online harassment article that came out in April, uh, we saw many situations where women were uh, chastised and uh, patronized and made fun of for uh, trying to have a family while also trying to continue their career. So this is, uh, you know, two of the things that people in the military are dealing with. Uh, just wanted to point out two quick solutions that we've talked about. Uh, one of the things that Tammy Smith, the chief of former chief of Army personnel told me was that keeping an open conversation between commanders and service members is a, a much better solution than trying to help them get the leave that they need. Commanders can talk to their service members and ensure that the door is always open so that they can get this care that they need. Secondly, a possibility is talking to the service relief funds, which are nonprofits. They may be able to help in providing loans or interest-free grants, things like that to try and help service members get the travel money that they need. Right, because you could have a policy change, for example, that the military could institute giving people more liberal leave for purposes of obtaining abortions. But on the other hand, that would require the loss of privacy because you would need to state the reason. So it, there's no easy trade-offs here, are there? Yeah, it's quite a catch-22 that they're in. And, and you know, some people don't want, you know, the, the other problem is this stigma that we're talking about. You know, someone starts thinking about this or what if your commander is a pro-life commander? You know, that at that point, would you feel comfortable telling your, your commander this and would they hold that against you? They may not do it purposefully, but in the back of their head, they're thinking about this. So there's a lot of these really small nuances that are really possibly harmful for service members who need an abortion. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, 
He took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so 
I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.